All right, well, hey, good morning, everybody, over here <laughs> and online. Glad to see you guys here this morning. Uh, so back when I was probably in junior high school, I guess, I was part of what our church called the Junior Deacons. And I know it sounds really impressive, but let me, let me tell you. So our deacons at the church, the full-on deacons, they, they did a lot of stuff in our church. But on a Sunday morning during the services, uh, they collected the offering, they counted attendance, and they kind of generally took care of things, <clears throat> logistical things on Sunday. And my friends, Jason, Rusty, Dale, uh, and another Jason and I started helping out in that area. Our three main jobs were handing out bulletins at the beginning of the service. Remember those? Pre-COVID, <laughs> handing out paper. <clears throat> anyway, ask your parents. Um, handing out bulletins at the beginning of the service, uh, taking attendance, and then collecting the offering. Uh, and we did all of this under the supervision of the two deacons in our church, Ron McElhatton and Jim Nico, who we called Big Mac and Big Man, respectively. Uh, so we had little name tags and everything. And we enjoyed doing this, not so much we believe, because we believed in the importance of what we were doing, uh, but because we liked Big Mac and we liked Big Man and we liked hanging out with each other. Uh, so we had fun doing it. And at one point, Emily, my sister, wanted to join us. And so me and my friends were like, yeah, sure. I mean, come on, let's do it. Yeah, sounds good. Big Mac and Big Man had no problem with it. But the idea got the hard veto from our pastor. And we were told that it was because she was a woman. And we're like, she's not a woman, she's my sister. <laughs> it's Emily, we know her, she's cool. Like, why does it matter that she's a girl? We're collecting the offering, handing out bulletins, taking attendance, and goofing off in the back of the church. Well, how come only boys can do that, you know? Now, this is my first experience with today's topic. Uh, and I myself have gone on a journey on this topic over the course of the last many years. Today is our last day in our, in our Being BIC, Being Brethren in Christ series, where we've been taking a look at what it means to be the Brethren in Christ uh, over the last few months. We've talked a little bit about our history. Uh, we've talked through what our denomination calls the 10 core values. Um, and today's topic is not one of the 10 core values. We've talked about all 10 so far. Uh, but if we're going to be looking at what it means to be brethren in Christ, we just cannot ignore this topic. So when it comes to women being involved in ministry, the answer pretty much across the board from all churches is that yes, women can and should be involved in church ministry. The question is, are they allowed, to, are they allowed in church ministry leadership? And if so, to what extent? There are generally two views on this, though there are nuances to each. Uh, the complementarian view, complementarian, says that a woman can hold any position in the church with the exception of pastor and elder. Uh, now, just a quick side note here. Uh, the, in the original Greek, the word for pastor and elder is the same. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, so biblically speaking, elder and pastor, they're kind of the same office, the same role. <clears throat> so in the complementarian view, a woman cannot be a pastor uh, or an elder in a church. Uh, the scenario from my opening story with my sister, that would have been an example of complementarian uh, and a complementarian viewpoint, although it would have been a more extreme version of that to not even let my sister teenage sister help handing out bulletins and stuff. 
The egalitarian position, egalitarian on the other hand, states that any position in the church that is open to a man is also open to a woman. A woman has the same calling, gifting, and opportunity as men in the church. Now, it's important here to note that uh, egalitarianism isn't inherently a religious term, uh, nor is it a recent term. Uh, it simply refers to the equality, right, of all members of a, of a society or a group, and, and which would also include in the home. But in the church realm, it, it refers to, when we're typically saying this word, we're referring to women being equally called and gifted with men. The Brethren in Christ denomination holds to the egalitarian position. In our position paper, Women in Ministry Leadership, it says this. <clears throat> the Brethren in Christ U.S. fully affirms women in ministry leadership at all levels of church life. Women are ordained and commissioned as pastors, bishops, deacons, denominational leaders, and members of local, regional, and national BIC U.S. governing boards. In keeping with historic convictions of the Brethren in Christ Church and our desire to remain faithful to our understanding of Scripture, the BICUS continues to fully recognize and support women in ministry and leadership at all levels of church life. Now, a couple of things before I continue on. First of all, uh, I will not be addressing all of the passages in Scripture that touch on this topic today. <laughs> And then the ones that I do touch on, I won't talk about everything that could be talked about for those passages. There just, there just isn't time. Second thing, I won't be settling this issue today. <laughs> right? There are good arguments to be made for both positions. If there weren't, this issue would have been resolved a long time ago, <laughs> one way or the other. I also won't be trying to paint the complementarian side as the bad guys, okay? I'm not going to do that. They are trying to be faithful to Scripture as well. What I am going to try to do is to show that while the BIC holds to the egalitarian position, it is not because of, like, cultural pressure to do so or any reason like that. It's because of our desire to take an honest look at Scripture and be true and obedient to that. So I'll try to lay out some biblical reasons for why we can hold this position soundly uh, here this morning. So, uh, and now we, we also recognize uh, that there are some passages in the Bible that sound pretty clear that women should not have certain leadership positions in the church. Right? 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12, where women are told to be quiet, submissive, and are not allowed to teach or have authority. Burns a little <laughs> or passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, where women are told to remain silent and are not allowed to speak in church. Sorry, Becky. <clears throat> These are really tough and seem pretty clear and definitive and, in fact, problematic for anyone who holds to the egalitarian viewpoint like the BIC does. But then we look at the rest of Scripture... And we see someone like Phoebe taking a leadership role in the church. We see Anna, who is a prophet. Junia, who is called out as outstanding among the apostles. We see Deborah in the Old Testament as a judge and deliverer of Israel. We see Priscilla, a fellow co-worker of Paul's and a teacher of Apollos, who went on to be a very famous apostle. 
We see Jesus elevating women and Paul assuming the leadership of women in the church in other passages. We see a woman and a Samaritan at that being the first evangelist. We see a woman being the first witness to the resurrection. When we see these things, we can see that there is probably more going on in Scripture than just what these first seemingly problematic passages might be saying. Maybe they're not as clear-cut as we might think. But they're in the Bible, so we can't just chuck them, right? They're there. So I'm going to try to address some of these big passages that I just mentioned, the 1 Timothy and the Corinthians passage, um, and add some context that I think will be helpful in our understanding. So let's, uh, we're just going to jump right in. We'll start in that 1 Timothy chapter 2 passage. So 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Excuse me. What? (laughs) Women will be saved through childbearing? It's all over my glasses. Okay, so believe it or not, that's actually not even the problematic part of this passage. To be completely frank here, biblical scholars don't know what the heck Paul is talking about here. Okay, there are several theories out there, some more flimsy than others, But we can say this. Paul, who is the one who wrote this particular letter, has said too many other times in his writings that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone, not by anything that we do or can accomplish. He is emphatic on this point over and over again. So whatever it means, this childbearing thing, We know that it doesn't mean that women achieve salvation and actual reconciliation with God through the act of childbirth. We really don't have time to go into what some of those theories are on this today, but I just want you to know that I hear how weird that sounds, but we need to understand that it, it doesn't say what it sounds at first blush like it might be saying. Okay, so let's get to the other parts of this passage here, okay? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Let's look at this first line here. A couple of things to note here. First, a woman should learn. That's that's the emphasis here. A woman should learn. That's the news flash from this passage. He's giving women the right to learn, and which was a big thing back then. <clears throat> and when Paul says this, He actually has the example of Jesus himself in mind. There's a story uh, when Jesus goes to a house uh, and two women are there, Mary and her uh, her sister Martha. And Martha's running around like crazy, getting the house ready to host all these people, hosting a party. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him with the other disciples. And Martha comes up to Jesus. She's like, yo, Jesus, can you please tell my good-for-nothing sister to get up and help me? And Jesus tells her, actually, she's chosen rightly. 
And we often make the application point here that we need to learn to slow down. Right? Stop being so frantic like Martha and instead sit at Jesus' feet and just be in his presence like Mary. And that is a true statement. It is not a wrong application to make from this passage. But the scandal of this story was that Jesus allowed Mary to sit at his feet and learn from him. This was a position, both societally, culturally, and physically, that was reserved for disciples. And the role of disciple was reserved for men. And here, Jesus endorses her presence there with him and her filling of that position. So Paul has in mind the example of Jesus when he says that a woman should learn. Now, what about the rest of that line, right? In quietness and full submission. Well, the idea behind this part of the sentence is that this was the posture of all disciples. When you sat as a disciple or a student of a rabbi, which is a teacher, you would listen in quietness and full submission to that teacher. This was how all disciples, men and women, were to learn. This actually isn't referring to submission to men. It's referring to submission to God, listening in quietness and full submission to the teacher, to, to Jesus. So this first line, as bad as it might sound at first, is not necessarily an endorsement of a complementarian viewpoint. The next line is a little more difficult. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. Yikes. Ryan, how are you going to weasel around this one? Right, I'm not going to try to weasel around it. I'm not going to try to get around it. Let's see what's going on here, too. The key words here are teach and assume authority. So let's get some background going here. This letter was written to Timothy, which at this point, we believe him to be at the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire uh, and was known for its worship of the gods, but for one in particular, Artemis. Ephesus had the temple of Artemis there, and the priests were actually priestesses. Priestesses. Women were the priests at the temple of Artemis. And these women were actually, in contrast to much of the rest of the society, pretty highly educated. They ran things at the temple of Artemis. But they had a reputation for lewdness, sexuality, right? Dressing seductively and for being generally not very kind leaders. And the belief here is that some of these women started attending the fledgling Christian church in Ephesus, which is actually great, right? Like it would have been awesome to see priestesses from another temple coming to investigate the Christian church and Jesus, right? That would have been good. But they were bringing with them some practices and teachings that went against the scriptures and against the witness of Jesus. So it's in this context that you get some of Paul's writings about how to dress appropriately, right? And how women should behave. He's addressing these women in this context. Another reason that why we can think this uh, is the Greek word that's used here for assuming authority. The word that's used here is authenteo. And it's the only time that it is used in the New Testament. Now, there are other uses of this word in other ancient sources. It's rare, but it, they are used in other ancient sources. But they are all used with, with a negative context, meaning they all have ugly or negative associations with 
the term. So when you use this specific Greek word, it assumes that it's a negative sort of exercising of authority. Like they were usurping authority or taking things over in hostile ways. That's the meaning that using this word would carry. There are other words that mean authority that Paul could have used that have much more benign or neutral connotations. In fact, Words that mean authority are used 85 times in the New Testament. But the one used here is only used this one time. And it's the word that Paul chose to use here. So if Paul wanted to make a blanket statement that women shouldn't, women shouldn't have authority over men generally, there are other words that were available and in fact even more appropriate for him to use there. We also note that this passage comes in a line of thought, uh, previous verses leading up to this, where Paul is addressing negative behaviors of both men and women. Behaviors that both men and women need to stop and then giving alternatives for better behavior. So this lends credibility to our understanding that this, is, this word represented a, represented a negative practice that needed to be stopped. So it isn't that Paul is saying that women shouldn't have authority, He's saying that they shouldn't do it in negative, hurtful, divisive, or destructive ways, which is a good word for all of us. A helpful idea for us to bear in mind also uh, is Paul's reason for writing this to Timothy, writing this letter. Paul says very explicitly at the very beginning of the letter that the reason he was writing was to deal with some of the false teachers and false teachings that were starting to creep into the church. Paul's beef wasn't with women here. It was with false teachers and false teachings. Another helpful key to bear in mind for this, and really all passages of Scripture, but particularly the letters to peoples and churches, is the concept of high-context and low-context relationships. High-context relationship and a low-context relationship. Letter writing was not cheap back then. Right? As, 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 you know, not often as we write letters now these days, it's also a fairly simple and cheap process, even with the cost of stamps going up. Some have calculated, though, that writing a letter back in this time period could cost you up to $500 in today's money for materials, expertise, delivery, all this kind of thing. You had to save space and write only what you needed to. <laughs> Letter writing was kind of an art. <laughs> and because of that, if you were writing to someone that you knew really well, and you had a high context relationship with, right? You had a great understanding of one another. You could pretty much kind of finish each other's sentences. Then you could get away with writing less, and the other person would know what you meant. This was the kind of relationship that Paul and Timothy had. He didn't have to write much, and Timothy would know what he meant. So we only have these few words left to us 2,000 years later. But there are layers of context and meaning that would have been known to Timothy when he received this letter. They had a high-context relationship, as opposed to us, who have a very low-context relationship with Paul and these letters. <clears throat> this would have been true also of letter deliverers. Back then, the person delivering the letter had to be a trusted individual, someone who would act as the representative for the letter writer when they brought the letter to the recipients. 
Um, the woman Phoebe, who I mentioned briefly earlier, is believed to be uh, the one who delivered the letter to the Romans for Paul, the book that we call Romans in our Bible. She would have essentially stood for Paul when she delivered the letter. She would have read it to the early church there, and she would have fielded any questions that they had about the letter, and she would have been able to answer them. Phoebe is just one example of Paul's endorsement of women leading in the early church. So here in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to someone that he didn't have to use a lot of words with, and we have to fill in some of those meaning gaps. He used a word that is only used once in the New Testament to convey meaning, and he endorses women learning. Add to this some of the other context that we find in other parts of his writings that we're going to get to in a minute, and this passage isn't as clear-cut from the complementarian point of view as we might have first thought. There is context that matters to the meaning of that passage. Now, another passage that we can look at is 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. All right, thanks. Done. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Ooh, that's a tough one, too. <laughs> I'm just the messenger. <laughs> and I'll agree, it is pretty tough, right? No doubt. But again, there is context. Let's take a little a closer look here, too. This is Paul, again, same guy who's writing to this church in Corinth as who wrote to Timothy just, that we just looked at. So the same guy. So let me start with what it is not saying. Okay? It's not saying that women should be completely silent and not say or do anything in a church. Now, I know that those are words that we have used in translating this passage, and I'm not saying that the translation is bad or wrong, but I am saying there is, again, context that we need to take into account if we are to appropriately apply it to our current context. First of all, just four verses after this one, we read, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, the NIV is the um, translation that says brothers and sisters. But the reason it can translate, and some other translations will just have brothers, right? The word that the original Greek word used there refers to believers, just believers in general, men and women, which is why the NIV, when that word comes up, will translate it brothers and sisters. It's a little more gender specific to the writer. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. A woman prophesying was assumed here. And prophesying, just, just for our information here, uh, does not just mean like predicting the future, right? Uh, it, was all, it simply meant teaching, right? And instructing from the scriptures, right? What, what I'm doing right now. And here, not a few sentences after our problematic passage, it's assumed that women would do this. Then, just three chapters previous to this passage, we read in 1 Corinthians 11, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head un uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. 
The point here is not the covering and uncovering of the head. Okay, that was very cultural, culturally specific. That, that's not the emphasis here. It's, the, it's that it's again assumed that women would in fact pray and prophesy. And then there are a couple of times when Paul talks about the created order, right? Adam was created first and all this kind of thing. And it might seem that Paul is saying women should not have this kind of authority because of the created order. But we read in this same chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for women, for woman, but woman for man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. This passage, he's bringing it back to the, um, to the created order again. But this, this is about the mutuality of men and women. Yes, according to the Genesis creation narrative, a woman was created from a man. But Paul makes sure to make the point in verses 11 and 12 that men come from women now in birth. So his point is that men and women are not independent of each other, but in fact interdependent of each other, just as they are both fully dependent on God. This gets to the idea of mutual submission that he talks about in Ephesians. Same God, mutual submission. That's the point here. And then there are other passages of Scripture like Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Joel is a prophet in the Old Testament. And he says this, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. He's a message from God here. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is, not, this is not really about the end times, as some have thought. It's actually about when the kingdom of God comes, which came in part when Jesus rose from the dead and his spirit came on his people. And in the Old Testament, which is where this particular passage was written, Prophesying was the mark of having the Holy Spirit. If you were prophesying, then you had the Holy Spirit. So when Joel spoke this, he was saying that the Spirit would be on both men and women alike. And then we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Acts chapter 2. And then again, Paul himself put all people on the same level ground in the presence of Jesus in Galatians. When he says this, so in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, Given the context that Paul assumes that women are in positions of authority in the church, given that Jesus himself empowers women in his ministry, given that Paul himself writes about women prophesying in this very same book and even very same chapter, then whatever 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35 means, it can't mean a blanket prohibition 
of women teaching or having authority in the church. Now again, there are contextual considerations here about what it could mean, right? Some theories about what he's actually saying here in 1 Corinthians 14. One theory that could hold water uh, is that when Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35, he's actually quoting from the opposition, right? So these, these Corinthian letters are actually Paul's responses to letters that he received from the Corinthian church. And Paul, Paul's Corinthian letters, when he, when he writes them, he will often quote what they say in a letter and then give his response. Now, sometimes he'll respond sarcastically because he's Paul, and that's what he does. And the words here in this passage actually seem to follow this pattern. Right? So he says these words in verses 34 and 35. Then he says right after, Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? Right? There's a sarcastic response. Then verse 37, If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. And then we get to verse 39, which we read earlier. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So that could be what's happening here. The words and the pattern certainly seem to line up. It seems to make sense. But we, to be completely honest, we can't be sure. Right? We can't be completely sure about that. The difficulty in figuring out when Paul is doing this is, uh, goes back to something I mentioned a few weeks ago. There's no punctuation in the ancient Greek. There were no quotation marks for us to know when he was quoting somebody. So we're left with trying to figure out when he's doing this. Sometimes it's easier to determine than others. But he says this in like, in like the same breath as his seeming prohibition. It's like in the same breath that he says both men and women should be eager to prophesy. So to, to say that there is a different context, a different way to interpret this, would make sense here. So I've thrown a lot at us this morning. Um, there are many more passages that we could discuss. There's a lot more uh, notes that I had crossed out and couldn't include in the sermon because it was already getting long. My main goal here this morning is not to address every single concern. It's not even to completely persuade any of you of the BIC point of view. It's just to say that we have reasons for believing what we do. Right? And not everything is as clear-cut, maybe, as it might seem on the surface. There is work that needs to be done in interpretation. Man, work? Yeah. It's an old set of documents here, guys. These things are old. There is work in interpretation. And there are resources out there that we should take advantage of to help us do that work. Uh, a quick example to show us the kind of work that is ahead of us as we seek to understand the Bible. Remember the, the, uh, the word authenteo that I talked about, meaning assuming authority, uh, and had it only appeared once in the New Testament? That's called the legomenon, and it just refers to words that appear only once, and then we have to try to figure out what it means. <laughs> it doesn't happen like 10 or 12 other times. We can see how it's used in all of these and come up with a pretty good understanding. 
My friend Scott McFeet, he's the pastor at Refton BIC, uh, on the Bic Life podcast that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, he calls these, he calls these hapax legomenons, he calls them one-hit wonder words, which I think is really appropriate. So just, just listen to this. I thought this was fascinating. In the Greek New Testament, there are 138,014 words. 1.2% of those words, a little over 1,600, are hapax legomenons. In just Paul's writings, the percentage goes up a little bit to 1.6% from 1.2. When you look at his letters to Timothy and Titus, what are called his pastoral letters, that percentage goes up to 4%. Then in 1 Timothy, where our passage from today uh, comes from, 4% of those words are epoxlegomenons. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, again, where our passage was, 7.7% are one-hit wonder words. And in verses 9 through 15, which is the first section we looked at, verses 11 through 15, six of those words are hypoxlegomenons. Six. So we are left with a passage that might seem clear when we look at it at the English translation. But the work cannot stop with a first blush reading of the English. There are six words that appear only once that are used right here that we have to do a lot of work to figure out what in the world they mean. And this is one of those places where having a high context relationship with Timothy really helps Paul out because he can use very specialized, right, very specific words that get his message across concisely and Timothy will know what he's talking about without needing Paul to having to elaborate. And we on the low context ends of things have to figure out what he means. There are scholars who have done great work in this area and have come out on both the complementarian and egalitarian side. And here I actually want to give another plug for the Big Life podcast, BIC Life podcast that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. It's now live. Uh, and Scott, the other pastor who hosts with me and I, we're actually in the middle of a series on women in ministry leadership. Uh, the first two episodes of that series, we've got several episodes that are already in the can that you can listen to. But the first two episodes of this series go deep into what I was talking about today. Uh, and actually the stats that I got about the one-hit wonder words, um, I got from some of Scott's research in this area. And we talk about some of that and go deeper into that in the first episode of that series. There will also be some further guests uh, for the rest of this series, some women in the Brethren in Christ um, who are coming on to talk about their experience in ministry leadership as women. So please take advantage of the opportunity uh, to learn more about life and faith from a BIC perspective from the Big Life podcast. So check that out. Now, as with last week's topic about peace, there are people in the BIC who don't necessarily agree with this stance. And like last week, we have a big tent and we can still participate in full fellowship with each other. But we just have to be aware that if you attend the BIC church, this will be the stance, officially. What we preach from up front when the topic comes up. I will continue to work with the women in our church, encouraging Tara <laughs> and others to preach when it comes up. I will continue to submit in accountability to both the men and women of our leadership team. And I will be better for it. 
I'd like to close today by reading the ending of the BIC position paper on women in ministry leadership. It goes like this. In keeping with historic convictions of the Brethren in Christ Church and our desire to remain faithful to our understanding of Scripture, the BICUS continues to fully recognize and support women in ministry and leadership at all levels of church life. We believe that the church truly does constitute God's new community, inaugurated by Christ, where both women and men are gifted and empowered for ministry, so that together we may fulfill the calling upon each of our lives. And so to sum up the calling on each of our lives, they refer to a passage from 1 Peter, which says, Each of you, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.